Well, Happy New Year. Welcome to 2023. A lot of people are saying good riddance to 2022, but we've been saying that for the last few years, ever since, ever since uh, 2020. Have you made your own New Year's resolutions yet? And uh, if you have, have you already broken them? <laughs> it doesn't take long to make and break. It's a time-honored tradition, both of those really, time-honored traditions. And you know it's a new year when you see that all the commercials are about uh, joining fitness clubs and purchasing weight loss supplements and magazine covers are strewn with ideas about how to organize your life. Most of us have probably broken more resolutions than we made, if that were possible. And so we might have a dim view of the whole idea of making resolutions. We might think, well, what's the point? Nevertheless, it is a good and worthy thing to to set about, to, uh, to make goals, and to want to better ourselves. And the, the Bible certainly uh, tells us to do that. It's full of challenges and pleas to not be content with where we are today, but to strive with all earnestness, to run the race and strain towards the finish line. Now, we who are good Presbyterians, we know that we can't do this on our own. We need God's grace. But God's grace does not preclude effort. Grace is not an excuse. It is a summons. It's an encouragement to take action, knowing that God is with us and will be with us. So maybe resolutions are worth another look. You may know that Jonathan Edwards was, was famously, uh, he famously wrote a whole book of resolutions that he made throughout his lifetime and, and it became a, a numbered list. Uh, for example, Resolution number seven, he said, resolved never to do anything which I should be afraid to do if it were the last hour of my life. Or number 25, resolved to examine carefully and constantly what that one thing in me is which causes me in the least to doubt of the love of God and to direct all my forces against it. These are some pretty good resolutions here. Number 58, resolved not only to refrain from an air of dislike, fretfulness, and anger in conversation, but to exhibit an air of love, cheerfulness, and benignity. Or uh, number 67, resolved after afflictions to inquire what I am the better for them, what good I have got by them, and what I might have got by them. Pretty good uh, challenging resolutions there from the great Jonathan Edwards. But, you know, uh, keeping resolutions, as our experience shows, is difficult at best. Uh, what we really need is God's reformational reviving power. In fact, we need to pursue his reformation regularly, as the title of the sermon suggests. And we're going to take, for example, the kingdom of Judah. Now, in our passage, we are parachuting down right into the middle of a story and it's in the middle of a transition of power. So if you're not familiar with Second Chronicles, we're transitioning from King Asa, who was described as a good king. First Kings 15 tells us that Asa did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, and that his heart was fully committed to the Lord all his life. And so we're tra transitioning from that good king to another good king, his son Jehoshaphat. Asa, during his reign, had led Judah through an important significant reform, uh, a spiritual reform that really clean, cleaned the house for them. But yet, as we see this morning, as we come into this passage, reformation is not a one-and-done thing. 
Jehoshaphat certainly did not think so. Uh, he led Judah through multiple reforms throughout his reign, and we will consider his early reforms this morning from 2 Chronicles 17. So allow me to pray for a moment, and then I'll read the text. Father, we pray that your word would speak directly to us. Holy Spirit, you are the author of all of Scripture. And you have said that all of Scripture is useful for us. So we pray that you would be the interpreter and the teacher for all of us this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So from 2 Chronicles 17, Jehoshaphat, his son, that's Asa's son, reigned in his place and strengthened himself against Israel. He placed forces in all the fortified cities of Judah and set garrisons in the land of Judah and in the cities of Ephraim that Asa his father had captured. The Lord was with Jehoshaphat because he walked in the earlier ways of his father David. He did not seek the Baals, but sought the God of his father and walked in his commandments and not according to the practices of Israel. Therefore, the Lord established the kingdom in his hand and all Judah brought tribute to Jehoshaphat and he had great riches and honor. His heart was courageous in the ways of the Lord. And furthermore, he took the high places and the Asherim out of Judah. In the third year of his reign, he sent his officials, Ben-Hale, Obadiah, Zechariah, Nethanel, and Micaiah, to teach in the cities of Judah. And with them, the Levites, Shemaiah, Nethaniah, Zebediah, Asahel, Shemiramoth, Jehonathan, Adonijah, Tobijah, and Tobadonijah, and with these Levites, the priests, Elishama and Jehoram, and they taught in Judah. Having the book of the law of the Lord with them, they went about through all the cities of Judah and taught among the people. And the fear of the Lord fell upon all the kingdoms of the lands that were around Judah, and they made no war against Jehoshaphat. Some of the Philistines brought Jehoshaphat presents and silver for tribute, and the Arabians also brought him 7,700 rams and 7,700 goats. And Jehoshaphat grew steadily greater. He built in Judah fortresses and store cities, and he had large supplies in the cities of Judah. He had soldiers, mighty men of valor in Jerusalem. This was the muster of them by fathers' houses, of Judah, the commanders of thousands, Adna, the commander with 300,000 mighty men of valor, and next to him, Jehohanan, the commander with 280,000. Next to him, Amasiah, the son of Zikri, a volunteer for the service of the Lord with 200,000 mighty men of valor. Of Benjamin, Eliada, a mighty man of valor with 200,000 men armed with bow and shield. And next to him, Jehozabad with 180,000 armed for war. These were in the service of the king besides those whom the king had placed in the fortified cities throughout all Judah. All right, I'm actually only going to go through verse 13, so uh, you can keep those other verses under your hat for later reading if you like reading all those historical names and numbers. Uh, but we have three divisions this morning. Do not be conformed to this world. You might be familiar with that phrase, verses 1 to 6. Uh, be transformed by the renewal of your mind, verses 7 to 9. And then uh, filling the earth with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord, verses 10 to 13. So do not be conformed to this world. As I type this phrase into Microsoft Word, the Microsoft Grammar please did not like that because um, they wanted it to say, do not conform to this world. 
But that would miss the point of what this passage is saying. Do not be conformed. The point is that the world, the culture that we live in, is constantly trying to shape us to be like it. It's like one of those Play-Doh toys. If you're familiar with the, the Play-Doh press, you know what that is? It's, it's kind of like a, it's, it's a little press with a handle on it. And you put the Play-Doh in the top and you push it down and the Play-Doh comes out the other end with whatever template you want to put on and whatever shape you want to make it into. And that's what the world is doing to us all the time, trying to push us down through that mold and shape us to look like how it wants us to look. It is a dangerous world we live in, physically and spiritually. And our hero in this story, Jehoshaphat, understood both of these dangers, and thus he prepared his kingdom for both dangers. Now, uh, this was at a time after Solomon's reign, so the, the, kingdom, the nation of Israel had split into two kingdoms, if you're not familiar with your history of Israel. They split into a northern kingdom called Israel and a southern kingdom of Judah, which was just made up of uh, the two tribes of Judah and Benjamin. And so sadly, the northern kingdom of Israel was Judah's main enemy. And so that was Jehoshaphat's focus here in the early years of his reign. He went into stationing troops and establishing garrisons on the border towns to serve as a deterrent, but also ready to fight as needed. And of course, this was a wise, practical move because borders need to be defended or they're not really borders, as he understood. But we need spiritual fortifications and defenses as well, don't we? The external enemies of the devil and his demons and our world are constant threats, but so is our internal, our internal enemy, our own sin nature, constantly is driving at us to fall back into our old sinful ways. So we are always needing to be engaged in spiritual warfare. Even when we don't notice it, it's happening around us. Just like God said to Cain back in Genesis 4, verse 7, but if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. That is our constant state, day in and day out. Sin is crouching at the door. So we need spiritual guardians at the borders of our hearts to prevent both the external enemies from breaching our borders as well as protecting us from ourselves, from those internal infiltrators. So what are these guardians that we need around our souls? Well, 2 Peter 3.18 gives us some idea. He tells his readers, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. So rather than focusing on the enemies outside of us, focus on growing in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. I used to be a runner. I ran track and cross country in high school and college. And one thing the coach and, and teammates would always say is, don't worry about the opponent behind you who's trying to catch you. Just focus on the person ahead of you and go after them. And what's behind you will take care of itself. And that's kind of the attitude here in Second Peter, I think, is focus on what's ahead of us. Our eyes should be fixed on God and on his grace. So we grow into spiritual maturity in the grace and knowledge of Christ. Now, in verses 3 to 6, it goes on to talk about needing to remove and fortify against those internal enemies of our own sin nature as well. And so Jehoshaphat, it says that it makes this simple statement, he does not seek after the Baals, but he sought God and followed his commands. The Baals were 
a recurring problem in the region. They were the popular God in all of the surrounding nations. The northern kingdom of Israel fell into that a lot, especially when King Ahab and, and his wife Jezebel were reigning. And that moved into the kingdom of Judah at a later point too. But for this time being that we're looking at, Jehoshaphat protected his people from the Baals. It was always a, th a potential threat. And frankly, Baal was a, a potential threat for Judah that was greater than any of their physical enemies could be. Because as long as they stayed with God, as long as they were worshiping God, they were going to be safe from anything. God would take care of them. The only way to defeat the kingdom of Judah was to put a wedge between them and their God. And in fact, we see a, a great example of that. If you're familiar with Everybody's favorite Old Testament book, Numbers. In Numbers 22 to 24, there's this story about, uh, this is when Israel is in the wilderness trying to make their way to the promised land. And they're going by the Moabites. And the Moabite king Balak hires a guy, a, a prophet or a sorcerer or something like that named Balaam to curse Israel. You guys familiar with this story? And Balaam goes out there and he tries to curse Israel, but God wouldn't let him say anything but blessings on the nation of Israel. As long as Israel was with God, nobody could do anything but bless them. But if you continue in Numbers down later on in history to chapter 31, we find out that Balaam was clever and he came up with a way to, to curse them. And that was by using the women and their worship, their prostitutional worship to lure the men of Israel after their own gods. And once that happened, then they were able to fall under God's wrath. It's a great reminder for us that the enemies without are nothing compared to the enemy within that is always with us, our sin nature. So if we want to succeed in our war against sin, the best defense is a good defense in this case. We need to remove the idols from our lives the Baals, the Asherahs, the high places, everything that entices and tempts us away from God that causes us to stumble and that ensnares us. For Jehoshaphat, that was the, the popular local God. That was Baal. Baal's not as popular today. Maybe we can't relate to that as well. But uh, other things are certainly problems for us today. Other things that are actually more insidious and less obvious than worshiping at a, a Baal altar. How much time did you spend with God and in his word this past week in hours and minutes? Or maybe you have to go to seconds to really measure how much time you spent in his word versus how many hours you spent on TV or social media. Who is shaping you in your life right now? Who is pressing you down into that Plato press? Who is speaking into your life and defining your identity? Well, the flip side of cleaning house and getting rid of idols is, well, where do we place our affections instead? Where do we draw our attention? And in verse 6, Jehoshaphat, it said that his heart was devoted to the ways of the Lord. When we remove something from our lives, we have to replace it with something of the Lord. Uh, otherwise, our sin nature will find something else pretty quick to replace the idol, and it'll just be another idol. And the biggest idols that we deal with in our lives can probably be categorized under the heading of self because we love ourselves. We are passionate about ourselves. We're devoted to 
meeting our needs and pleasing ourselves. And what's more, our culture tells us that we should be devoted to ourselves. We hear things like, I'm worth it, or I need to be true to myself, or I need to focus on self-improvement, self-actualization, be the best version of myself, and so on. But being a disciple of Christ is the opposite of that. John the Baptist said, he must increase, I must decrease. That is the the words that a disciple of Christ says. Discipleship is about self-denial. Take up your cross and follow Jesus. So we will be the best version of ourselves when we actually lay aside ourselves, crucify ourselves, and turn ourselves over to Jesus. A Christian whose devotion is divided by self becomes anemic and apathetic and impotent. Our attitude towards God is to look for what he can do for me. The person who is divided by self, their attitude towards religion religion is to focus on uh, debatable things. They get caught up in arguing about politics and which denomination is better. And we already know the answer to that, so we don't need to argue about that. Debatable things are, you know, like the Bible talks about, don't argue about these debatable things. These are things where there is an overlap between God and our idol. They're things that uh, we have a vested interest in winning the argument, and it's not a spiritual uh, reason, even though there might be a spiritual element to it. And that can even look like being excited about ministries in our churches and what we're doing for God. And people can be so excited about their ministry and yet actually be bored with God, which is terrible. So we want to avoid that, obviously. And uh, we remember that uh, adding Jesus to other things when we, add Jesus, when we add Jesus to other things, which is a lot of times what people are trying to do in Christianity, is find ways to fit Jesus into my life, right? When we do that, uh, we're really putting those other things as equal to Jesus. And the, the really bad thing about that is that it's not because we're raising those things up to be on the level with Christ. We're diminishing the value of Christ in our hearts and minds down to a carnal and uh, unimportant level. And we can do that when we combine Jesus with, for example, politics or Jesus and business, Jesus and sports, Jesus and fitness, Jesus and finances or community or other forms of spirituality. Jesus is and must be preeminent in our lives. And when Jesus is preeminent in our lives. This looks like vibrant and zealous and healthy and growing. The attitude towards God is not what I can get from him, but simply I need more of God himself. He is the good I seek. So we need to saturate ourselves with the awesomeness and the incomparability of God. Well, then in verses 7 and 9, we come to this, be transformed by the renewal of your mind, of course, from Romans 12. Now, this, uh, in these verses, it's still early on in Jehoshaphat's reign. It's in his third year. 
and he decides to organize this new program, and I'm not going to repeat all the names from that paragraph, as fun as it was to, to read through them one time. Uh, but while removing the bales and the astral poles and all that stuff was certainly important, there was more needed. The inner heart of the nation uh, was being purified, but what about the inner hearts of each individual person? In order to not just have a surface-level reform, but a deep heart reform, Jehoshaphat understood 900 years before Paul wrote this in Romans 12 that to be reformed or transformed, we need a continual renewing of our minds by God's Word. And this is not something that's optional. It's not something that's secondary. This is how God usually works in people through Scripture. The Word of God is powerful. And so Jehoshaphat, what he did was he appointed a team made up of civil officials as well as Levites and priests with the mission of taking God's word to every town in the nation. I just love that Jehoshaphat did this. It's such a, a beautiful and powerful thing that he does early on in his ministry. And he must have been fairly young still. And of all the things that he could do, and he had done some military things and some civil things too, I'm sure, but he understood that as a, a nation that was the people of God, this is where it was at. This is what was most important. And so these people, they went with a mission of teaching God's word, the book of the law in every town, and explaining the word. So transformation of the heart and the soul and the whole person begins in the mind. What the mind believes, the body tends to follow. And Jehoshaphat wisely did not start with simply trying to change people's behavior but with education. Hebrews 4 verse 12 says that the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. In Romans 1.16, Paul said, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Greek. So God's word is essential too. As I uh, kind of alluded to earlier, 2 Timothy 3.16, all of scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching and for reproof and correction and for training in righteousness. God's word is the light. It is true food. It is God's instruction, the only thing sharp enough to divide out the old nature the flesh, and remove it from us. And so this team that Jehoshaphat sent out, they didn't just read God's word. It says they also taught it. They explained it and they applied it. They helped people to understand it. And we need God's word to penetrate into the depths of our hearts. And unfortunately, as much as we know God's word is important and essential, we also know how easy it is sometimes to read through a passage of Scripture and just uh, you get to the end and you say, what was that I just read? I don't even know what I just looked at. And so we need, uh, we need to have people help us to understand it. We need to hear it read out loud. We need to believe it and act on it and make it central to ourselves. So how do we get more of God's word into our heart? Well, obviously we need to read it. And I think it's true to say that we need to hear it out loud. It's valuable to hear it out loud in addition to just reading it. Uh, we need the preaching from the pulpit. This is essential work that pastors do for us. We need to be taught it. We need to uh, have it explained and applied. We need to take down notes in 
the sermon. So if you're a person who, who never takes any notes, maybe try writing down one or two thoughts. And if you already take notes, maybe uh, take more notes or take, uh, take uh, a, a more of a thoughtful approach. But what good are notes if you never go back and look at them again? So we need to get into the habit of revisiting those notes and thinking about it and praying about it, meditating on it. Study God's Word. Discuss it. We need to memorize God's Word. And so uh, one of my challenges for you this morning and this week would be to brainstorm uh, some ways to get more Bible, not just into your ears or through your eyes, but into your heart and your mind in a deep way. Jesus shapes every part of our lives as we follow him. So then in the last few verses, in verses 10 to 13, I went off of the Romans 12 script a little bit here, filling the earth with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord, which comes from Hezekiah. Uh, And another way of saying that is go make disciples, because this is what a disciple is and what a disciple does. They, They go out to fill the earth with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord. They fill themselves up with that knowledge first, and then they spill it out to others. And we see that in these verses because in verses 10 and 11, one of the direct results of Judah becoming strong in God's word at home with the knowledge of the glory of God was that the surrounding nations were all impacted by this. Even the pesky Philistines, it says, began to fear the Lord. You know, the the nation that Goliath came from, the perennial enemy of Israel and Judah. And when it says they feared the Lord, that's the usual meaning of the phrase. It doesn't mean that they suddenly became afraid of Judah. It means that they begin to actually be God-fearers, to have an attitude of worship of God, which was Israel and Judah's whole purpose in the first place, to be a blessing to the nations of the world. And in fact, that's the goal of religion and of discipleship today for us. It's why we need to be regularly reformed so that the world can become reformed through us. So as we look at our society today, we might think it's kind of off the rails. It needs a major overhaul. There's too much work to be done. It can become hopeless to, to, to look at what's going on in our, not just in our nation, in our state, but in the world. So we pray for a revival of the land, but do we pray for it in our own selves? We can't just say, well, I'm a Christian. I go to church. I read my Bible. Therefore, the work is already done in me. I'm a finished product. Well, we, hopefully we all know that that's not true. We need regular reformation and revival. We need the flames of our hearts to be fanned over and over again by the Holy Spirit. And I think ultimately what this passage shows us, and, and especially if we were to continue over the next few chapters, is that if we want revival in the land and in the surrounding nations, that revival doesn't come from us. It has to come into us. It has to start in us, be renewed in us, and pass through us. Why would God use sleepy, complacent, apathetic people like we can sometimes be to spark a revival? But when a revival starts within just a single person, It is a flame that is likely to spread. A flame is contagious, and may it spread and consume. May this church be able to flourish. May the Lord bring the right pastor, and your ministry become a a spark of revival and reformation 
in this town. This is the natural outcome of growing in spiritual maturity. This is what should automatically be happening. If, if we as Christians are, are being more than just uh, pew warmers or chair warmers, but are actually growing deeper in our faith and in our discipleship, the natural response to that is going to be revival in the land. So the goal that God has for us is not to merely save us and then we're done. I heard it said in, a, actually it was in a book by J.T. English called Deep Discipleship, conversion is not the touchdown of the Christian life, it's the kickoff. Adoption into the family is not the end of life, it is the beginning. If God's only purpose was just to save us and then we're done, well, wouldn't he just take us to heaven right away? Which would be awesome, I would love that. But that's not what God's plan is. He keeps us here because he has purposeful discipleship work for us to do, filling the earth with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord. So the work of being transformed, of not being conformed to the world, is something that's ongoing. And uh, as this first major wave of Jehoshaphat's reforms were being enacted, it says that he went back again to fortifying and strengthening and defending and doing all those things. But uh, unfortunately, we, we're not going to look at all of this today. But if you peek ahead to chapter 20, after Jehoshaphat has done all of this military strengthening of his kingdom, when a great powerful enemy comes, it's not in his military forces that it depends he knew that he couldn't rely only on his armies when war came to him, but on God alone. Our greatest need and our greatest desire is the presence of God. And for 2023, that would be the greatest approach, I think, that we could take to this year. To realize that our greatest need and our greatest desire is the presence of God. So what is our motivation and what is the fuel of this fire that burns in us and spreads to others? The surrounding nations fear the Lord, it said. It is the glory of God. A disciple is one who is in awe of the majesty of God and goes around magnifying God to everyone else. Thus, our response to being transformed and reformed is not about building the right program, so that might be something useful to do as well, but it's in growing into the kind of people who are constantly enamored of God. Love God with our whole heart, soul, mind, and strength. Philippians 3 verse 10 says, I want to know Christ. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings becoming like him in his death. That would be the best resolution that we can make this year, to know Christ. Let us be enamored with God and grow into being even more enamored of God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the example of Jehoshaphat, who was a great man, a great leader, but one who was great because of his dependence on you. Lord, help us to be like him, to be enamored of you, to, be, uh, to have our hearts wholly devoted to you. And God, would you use our wholly devoted hearts to fan the fame of revival and reformation in our surrounding nations. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.